0: Can I have you turn to the book of Romans, chapter 1? All right, by way of review, uh, Paul has just finished his opening salutation, which covers verses 1 to 7, and his personal introduction, which covers verses 8 to the beginning of verse 16. The salutation has to do with the gospel of God, and the introduction focuses on the servant of God. The first deals with the message. The second deals with the messenger. Verses 16 and 17 are what is known in homiletics. Homiletics is the science of teaching and preaching the Bible. So I took a homiletics class years ago, and they teach you how to study a passage, outline it, what's the main thought. So homiletics, uh, the, the science of of, of teaching and preaching the Bible. Uh, in homiletics, verses 16 and 17 are known as the proposi- proposition statement. Some have just made it simple and called it the big idea. The big idea. These two verses form the theme and the thesis of the book. And actually, the rest of the epistle, not to get too simplistic, but the rest of the epistle is merely an expansion of verses 16 and And 17 of Romans 1. The beginning of verse 16 is really the final statement in Paul's personal introduction of himself and ministry, where he said, I am not ashamed. The rest of that statement of the gospel of Christ becomes the theme. Now, guys, before we go on, let me say this about Paul's statement I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. You need to understand that up until this point, Paul has been imprisoned and beaten in Philippi, chased out of Thessalonica, smuggled out of Berea, laughed at in Athens, considered a fool in Corinth, and stoned in Galatia. And yet he remained unashamed and eager to preach the gospel in Rome. Rome. Think about this. Understand we're talking about Rome the home of Caesar Nero, the madman who was determined to exterminate Christianity by killing every Christian he could get his hands on. Nero, the one who dressed thousands of Christians in the skins of lambs and then threw them to wolves and lions as he cried out, Where is your good shepherd now, little flock? Nero, who dipped Christians in hot pitch and lit them on fire to be to be torches in his garden while he screamed, how does it feel to be the light of the world now, Christians? Guys, this was Rome. A city so decadent and immoral, it would make Hollywood blush, and that's saying a lot. But I fully stand behind that. Rome, the imperial city itself, which was not only the capital of the empire, but listen, the very center of all paganism and idolatry, a place where the accepted greeting of the day was, Caesar is Lord. One author said it well. He said, and I quote, It would take a lot of guts for this bald-headed, bowed-legged, poor-sided, hook-nosed, little Jewish Christian tent maker, who claimed no other Lord than the one who commanded no army made his triumphal entry on the back of a donkey, and was nailed to a cross by Roman soldiers, it would take a lot of guts for this guy to preach the good news or the gospel of God in Rome. Now, I think that this kind of courage and um, boldness tends to amaze most of us who are Christians living today in America. Why? Uh, Simply because we have not seen this kind of persecution in our lives against the gospel. It might be coming, but up until now, we haven't seen the kind of persecution against the gospel Paul faced and those early Christians faced um, in their cities and especially in Rome. And because of it, you would think that, you know, we would be more bold because we face less persecution. You know, you would think about that, right? The less people persecute us, the more bold we should be. Instead, we're often not as bold as they were because we're often ashamed or embarrassed of the gospel because of what people will, you know, think about us or what they're going to say about us, to which we should really just say, shame on us. The scriptures say that the fear of man brings a snare. Proverbs twenty-nine, twenty-five. Look, in America, we're not facing bodily persecution, physical harm. We're not facing martyrdom for the cause of Christ at this point. So why are we so timid? And again, Paul said that God doesn't give this a spirit of timidity, but of power, love, and a sound mind. So if we're timid with regard to the gospel, we are not being filled with the spirit. We're letting the spirit of the age take over. But as American Christians... And I thank God for brothers and sisters that have such remarkable boldness. God bless them. Uh, I'm praying for more boldness in my life. Hopefully you are too. But we don't face martyrdom yet as Christians in America. Yet we're fearful oftentimes. Of what? (laughs) Of being laughed at and ridiculed by strangers? Uh, Rejected by friends? You know, to believe in Jesus Christ is more and more to commit social suicide. You lose your friends. I mean, it was that way when I got saved. It's even worse now. Christianity, it's, things are ramping up where Christianity is going to be persecuted more and more. Christians. You know, we have to understand that. But if we can't even stand up and speak out for Jesus now, how are we going to then when it might mean Bodily persecution or even martyrdom. Because we're afraid of what people are going to think about. Somebody has said ridicule is one of the most powerful things that people can use against you to shut you up. Ridicule. And because we don't want to be ridiculed, this causes us to either keep quiet or water down the gospel so as to make it less offensive, so that people what won't think so badly of us? Why are we worried? About what people think we should only care about what Paul said it some people you know they build me up some tear me down all I care about is what Jesus thinks of me that's all I care about right why was Paul so bold when it came to the gospel why was he not ashamed of it well he goes on to tell us in verse 16 And we're just reviewing a little bit from last week. But he said in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Let me stop there. Now we go from the heart of the apostle to the heart of the epistle. And no, the epistles are not the wives of the apostles. Somebody did a survey on a college campus somewhere. And what are the epistles? Well, they're the wives of the apostles. Okay. Uh, no. No, they're, they're not. Uh, but here we go from the heart of the apostle who was introducing himself because he had never been to Rome, sharing his heart as to who he was. But now we move to the heart of the epistle. And the reason Paul was so bold in proclaiming the gospel of Christ because he knew. He knew it was the power of God to save and transform lives. How did he know that? Because he experienced it himself on the road to Damascus, Paul's conversion experience has brought more than a few people to Jesus Christ. How do you explain this? A man going full blast one way against Christianity, and overnight he's going full blast the other way for Christianity. I mean, people that understand some things about how the human mind works and things and how people change will tell you that is not only strange, it is unique. To have a guy, you know, people can change their views over time. But we're talking about, like, overnight? This guy goes from a rabid, you know, anti-Christian, fundamentalist zealot to one who was the greatest champion of the cross the church has ever seen. What happened? Paul said it himself. It was because he had seen the risen Christ. He had seen the risen Christ. But Paul knew that the, he had experienced the power of God in his own life when he embraced the gospel, and he had seen its power in the lives of countless others who had believed it, embraced it, and had been transformed by it. Paul knew firsthand the power in the gospel. Guys, listen. To preach the gospel with boldness, you must first believe in its power to transform to transform lives with all your heart you talk to a salesperson who is selling a product and they don't really believe it's a good product they're selling it they have to build it up but they don't really believe it's a good product there's not a lot of passion there is there because they don't really believe what they're selling now we're not selling anything we're giving it away the gospel is free But if we don't believe in its power to transform lives, then we're not going to present it with much passion. So first of all, if you want to preach the gospel with boldness, you must first believe in its power to transform lives with all your heart. Secondly, you must love God and love the lost more than you love yourself. More than you love yourself, your reputation, and even your life itself. You know, I was looking over my notes on Romans from the last time I taught through it on Sunday mornings back starting back in 1999. And, of course, I was immediately reminded because in my notes I had made reference to how on April 20th of that year, how most of us remember the shooting that took place in Columbine High School. We remember that at approximately 11.21 in the morning, Two students, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, walked into the school cafeteria and opened fire. They then moved upstairs into the school library, which was crowded with students studying, and opened fire again. The students immediately took cover underneath the desks, the tables. One of the students that morning in that library was a young woman named Cassie Bernal. Cassie had been reading her Bible on the table that morning, and it lay open there on the, on the table, and when the gunfire started, she dive, dove under the table. Well, one of the shooters saw her Bible laying on the table, walked over there, and told her, come out from under there. He walked up to her and pointed his gun at her head and he asked do you believe in god? Cassie paused for a second knowing what was about to happen. And then she said calmly, I believe in Jesus. And so should you. To which the gumman responded, there is no god and shot her dead. At her funeral, her friends and classmates remembered what a committed Christian Cassie had been. What a lot of people don't know from the story is that two years prior to her death, she was totally against Christianity. She was involved in witchcraft. She was very suicidal. But by the grace of God, God led somebody to witness to her. Yeah, you know, there comes a point when you're so low, like the little gal we saw Sunday, who had gotten into the occult and into meth. There is a point where you get so low, all you can do is look up. And Cassie was probably at that place. I don't know the whole story. I just know bits and pieces of it. But six months later, she turned her life over to Jesus, and she became a radical evangelist on her school campus. Most of us who are Christians marvel at how a 17-year-old, who had only been a Christian for around 18 months, could look down the barrel of a gun and give such a powerful witness, knowing it was probably going to cost her her life. Where did she get her boldness? Where did she get such amazing courage? You say, well, that's easy, the Holy Spirit. Okay, yeah, but every Christian is the Holy Spirit, and not every Christian would face death like this. It came out uh, excuse me, 48 hours before she died that Cassie was reflecting on her relationship with Jesus, and she wrote these words in her journal just two days before she was killed for her faith. These are her words. She said, Now I have given up on everything else. I have found it to be the only way to really know Christ and to experience the mighty power that brought him to life again and to find out what it means to suffer and to die with him. Interesting. Two days before she was going to die. She's prophesying and she doesn't even realize it. So whatever it takes, I will be one who lives in the fresh newness of life of those who are alive from the dead, End quote. Where did Cassie get her courage? From her commitment. From her commitment to Jesus Christ. Carnal Christians don't have that kind of courage. It takes a full-on, full-blown commitment to Jesus Christ for the Holy Spirit to give you that kind of courage in the face of a situation like that. You know, Satan never seems to learn the lesson. As Tertullian once said, he was an early church father. Maybe you've heard the quote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The more Christians you kill, the more are going to be raised up. I'm sure Satan knows that in principle, but he can't help himself when the opportunity presents itself to take one of us out. He just, he just can't hold himself back. But what Satan intended for evil, in other words, killing a beautiful young Christian woman, it was used by God to bring many to faith in Jesus. Many of her friends, her classmates, and people that didn't even know Cassie until this event, but read about her story and were moved and got saved because of what happened that day. It's just as Jesus himself said in John 12. He said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. In other words, guys, you can't serve two masters. You, you can't love the world and the Lord Jesus Christ simultaneously. You must choose. As Joshua said to the children of Israel so many centuries ago, Joshua 24:15. choose this day whom you're going to serve as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. It takes a conscious commitment. If you try to live your Christian life on autopilot, so to speak, if you try to fumble your way through your life for Christ without a plan, without any sense of commitment and so on, and hoping that you'll just, I guess, bounce off of different opportunities that happen to come your way, your life will it's not going to be anything to what God really wanted for your life to be. You've got to choose who or what you're going to love and serve. And the only way you're not going to be ashamed of the gospel is if you commit yourself fully and completely to Jesus Christ, as Cassie had done. But before you can commit your life to something, you first have to believe in it. Before you can commit your life to something, you first have to believe in it. And before you can believe in it, you first need to understand it. Understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ, listen, hinges on knowing four key words. Four key words, all of which come out of Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Let me read those two verses again. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. You know what the four words are? Here they are. Power, verse 16. Salvation, verse 16. Believes, verse 16. And righteousness, verse 17. Now, these concepts are going to be mentioned over and over again in the book of Romans. And so I'm not going to spend, you know, two weeks on each one of them now. I'm going to throw it out there, give you something to think about. And then as we go through the book, we come across these topics, subjects, um, where Paul gives them each a little more of a fuller treatise. We'll spend a little more time tonight just to lay the groundwork, Okay. First of all, power. We, we looked at this a little bit last time. Verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God. The Greek word translated power is dunamis, from which we get our English words dynamic and dynamite from. Guys, the gospel is God's offer of omnipotent power to an impotent In other words, a powerless, weak, helpless world. You might be thinking, power for what? The answer is power to be saved. Power to be set free and transformed. Power to be a completely different person than what you were before you gave your life to Christ. And ultimately, power to change your world. Now, God doesn't call many to change the world. A few he has. But he's called all of us to change our world. The circle of friends we run with, acquaintances we know, people we work with, neighbors we live by. We can affect them. We can make a difference in their lives. We can pray for them. As the opportunity presents itself, we can, first of all, by our lives that we were living, show them what Jesus is like, what Christianity is really all about. And as God opens the door into their heart, share the gospel. Look, I believe that a lot of people are painfully aware of their shortcomings, bad habits, addictions, and would love to change. But they don't know how. They don't have the power to change. Many people who are in bondage would love to be set free free from the sinful lives they are living, the things that have them bound. But how? How? You know, God said to the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 13, verse 23, He said, Can the Ethiopian change the color of his skin, or can the leopard change its spots? If so, then you also who are accustomed to doing evil can start doing good. In other words, your nature's in view. We have the ability to modify behavior, right? Uh, I would suppose you could kind of modify a lion's behavior if you trained it right and somehow communicated to it that if he ate the lamb that you were going to put in his cage, that would be detrimental to the lion's health or somewhat something. And even though he'd be salivating, wanting to get a hold of that lamb and tear it apart, because that's his nature, we have the ability to, you know, to um, work in an animal's life or even in people's lives where they don't do what they want to do, but it's always there that they want to do these things. That's because their fallen nature is still controlling them. Now, when you're a Christian, you get a new nature. The old nature hangs around. And now there's a war. Galatians what, 5, verses 16 to 17. One is warring against the other. These two are in constant conflict so that you don't always do the things you want to do. Well, we'll study that in detail. We get to Romans 7. The world promises to teach you how to modify your behavior. God offers you a way to change your nature entirely. People make resolutions and you know may experience partial victory or temporary victory in their lives only to slip back under the control of whatever they're in bondage to. I've seen it many, many times over the years. Look, only the power of God can make a person a new creation. Where old things pass away and all things become new. The power of God working through the gospel of Jesus Christ can do for us what we absolutely cannot do for ourselves, set us free, and not just temporarily change us, listen, permanently transform us. And if you don't think that's possible, and I don't see why anyone in this room would think that, we know the power of God. We've seen it in our own lives. Many years ago, when the Spirit of God was moving in the 60s and 70s, and a lot of people were getting saved. Pastor Chuck decided to write a book called Harvest. It took the lives of 10 men different backgrounds who had all gotten saved and were now Calvary pastors, many of them of giant churches that the world couldn't figure out. The religious world. How was this possible? I mean you're talking about drug dealers You're talking about, um, you know, beach bums. You're talking about one guy who learned martial arts and then joined the Marines just so he could kill people legally. He was so filled with anger and hatred from his upbringing. We're talking about 10 different men with 10 different backgrounds, but one spirit... On behalf of one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ touched each one of their hearts and didn't just modify their behavior, he made them brand new creations. And you look at these men, and they're not alone by any means. Since that book was written, thousands upon thousands of others whose lives were basically over. Families had written them off. Pastor Mike McIntosh, I know very well. Um, Mike was so strung out on drugs that he literally lost his mind. He became so schizoid. His wife had to divorce him. He was just too far gone. The medical community wrote him off. I mean, he was just that far gone. Out of his mind couldn't distinguish between reality and fantasy anymore. The acid just messed him up. And so Mike talks about how somebody in, well, being used by God, brought Mike to Calvary Chapel where he heard the gospel. And he went forward to receive the Lord. And then Pastor Chuck said, if there's anybody here who needs prayer for anything Go back to the prayer room. We have the elders there waiting to pray with you. So Mike went back, and he explained the story, how he couldn't distinguish between, re- he slipped in and out of fantasy, reality. His mind was was gone. And a group of elders surrounded Mike and prayed over him, and Mike said, as they prayed over me, I fo- felt like a, a, a bolt of electricity shot through my body. And instantly, I was healed. All the neurological damage was gone. God put me in my right mind. Mike went on to remarry his wife and pastor a church of 15 or 20,000 people going all over the world evangelizing too. And Mike's story is not unique. Not among the stories that God birthed through the Calvary Chapel movement, which was really, look, it wasn't a Calvary Chapel movement. It was a Jesus movement. It was the Holy Spirit movement. We just happened to be a part of it. Thank God. God let us be a part of it. So power. The gospel has power to transform lives. It has power to bring salvation, right? That's the second key word. Salvation. Salvation. Again, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. The Greek word for salvation is soteria, which carries with it the idea of deliverance or rescue. Once we have repented for our sins and have put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior, the result is we are saved. But that begs the question what exactly are we saved from? You know, many uh, Christian uh, radio and TV uh, preachers and teachers tell people that when you, exceed, when you accept Christ, God has saved you from what? From poverty? From unhappiness? From sickness? That isn't true. He might. Heal some. He might bring some out of poverty and put their feet back on sound financial footings. There's a lot of things that God will do in people's lives. I'm not limiting God. But that is not a blanket promise in the word of God for all God's people. But God has given it to them. All they need to do is claim it by faith. And to be sure, send us a 100 bucks because here we are, doing the work of God. Don't you appreciate us? You know. Besides that, if you give, God will give you a hundred and full return. Give us a hundred, what is it, ten grand? Just send it in. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, but that's not true. That's a false gospel. It's what Peter said that You know, in the last days especially, people would come trying to make merchandise off of you. In fact, they would go as far as to deny the Lord who bought them. Deny that his shed blood was sufficient to atone for their sins. We talked about that in length last week. Well, what are we saved from? You're saved, okay? Well, what, what you know? What what are what am I saved from? What does it mean to be saved? Uh, actually, the Bible teaches that our salvation takes place on three different levels: past, present, and future. First of all, we have been saved (past tense) from the penalty of sin. In other words, we're no longer going to hell. There's so many verses on this. I'll just read you Romans 8, 1. Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation, no judgment in hell to those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul is using the word soteria here in Romans 1:16 to speak of the power of God to save, or in other words, deliver, rescue us from coming judgment in hell. Now look. Let me just say this, and we'll study this more in chapter 2. Nobody goes to hell by chance. They go to hell by choice. Look over at Romans 2, just for a minute. Nobody goes to hell by chance. They go to hell by choice. Romans 2, starting with verse 5. But because of your stubbornness, and your unrepentant heart. You are stirring up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when His righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what He has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality. These are the ones who have a new nature, of course. They've accepted Christ Is obviously the context. Uh, But uh, for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Years ago, we were helping one of the Calvaries in the area with a crusade they were doing. They had rented a park and, uh, had, uh, uh, they had a stage area and, um, they worked hard to put together this outreach, this crusade. And uh, so we were over there trying to help them. And, um, Right before the thing started, there were people starting to gather. What's going on? What's this all about? And we had opportunities to walk up to people and uh, witness. Well, one young guy had a very strong uh, view of um, the biblical God. He said, I can't believe in a God who throws people into a torture chamber named hell. And that's why I don't believe in God. Okay. Okay. I said to him, you know, the Bible says that hell was not even made for man. Uh, Matthew 25, 41. Hell was made for the devil and his angels. But if you want to rebel against God as Lucifer did, you can go all the way to the place he's going to spend eternity, which is hell. But that won't be God's fault. That'll be your choice. Because God loves you. He wants to save you. Now I quoted Ezekiel 18 where God said, look, turn, please turn from your sins. Why will you die? Why will you perish in hell? I get no pleasure out of sending people to hell. Please come to me and receive forgiveness for your sins and so on. Well, he walked away eventually. I don't know whatever happened to him. I hope he got saved. But... It just reminded me once again the mentality that people have with regard to God so often. You know, people must stop seeing God as some, you know, cruel, medieval torturer who enjoys sending people to hell for the smallest transgression and start seeing him as the loving God he truly is, the God who is trying to rescue them from. The consequences, listen, of their own rebellion and short-sightedness. Look, folks, when you take your eyes off of eternity, if you believe in it, and get your eyes onto this life only, that's the ultimate example of short-sightedness. And people do it all the time. This is a common trait among unbelievers. They're so fixated on the here and now that they are not looking down the road, at eternity. If they were, if they do, things are going to change. But but God gets no pleasure out of sending anyone to hell. Luke nineteen ten, Jesus said, "For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost." John three seventeen. Jesus said, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world judge the world, send the world to hell, but that the world through him might be saved. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slack concerning his promise of coming judgment is the idea. That's the context. God is not slack concerning his promise to judge sin. He's got to if he's going to be a righteous God. As some count, slackness, because he's not judging things right now. Well, God doesn't mean what he said. He talks tough, but he's really a softie. You know? And it's like the parent who keeps threatening their kids, rebellious little kids. They're going to spank them. They're going to ground them, but they never do because they're softies. Our God's not a softie. He's merciful and long-suffering. Not willing that any should perish in hell, but that all should come to repentance. Don't confuse the patience and long-suffering of God for weakness. Like God doesn't keep his word. He will keep his word. But is giving all people time to repent. Because he loves them. So... First of all, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. Number two, we are being saved, present tense, from the power of sin. In other words, we're no longer the slaves of sin. Before we got saved, we were the slaves of the devil and our fallen nature, sin. But once we received Christ, that power was broken. I'm not saying we still can't sin. Of course we can we don't have to sin. That's the thing. We had no choice, in the, kind of. But we were controlled by the devil in our fallen nature. And certainly we wanted it because the fallen nature did what it wanted, and often that's what we wanted, right? But now as Christians, we are being saved from the power of sin. We're no longer the slaves of sin. I'll have you turn to these two. 1 Corinthians 1 and Romans 6. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, those who are on their way to hell. It seems like ridiculous nonsense. But to us who are, listen, being saved, it is the power of God. And the context is those of us who are being saved from the ongoing power of sin. It's called sanctification, being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ more and more every day. And as the more we grow in our Christ likeness, the less sin has a hold on our lives. So we are being saved from the power of sin, and more and more, hopefully, we're, our lives are being brought under the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Romans 6, verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin, listen, might be done away with. The Greek is katargeo, which means rendered inoperative. It's still there. It's still there. Our fallen sin nature. It's just that if we walk in the Spirit, we won't be controlled by our fallen nature anymore. The Spirit of God will control us. So knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be, listen, slaves of sin. I was listening to one of the old-time preachers who was uh, preaching on this subject, and he challenged his audience at one point by saying, and I'm quoting him, if you say you're saved, what are you saved from? Are you saved from bitterness? Are you saved from lust? Are you saved from cheating, lying, stealing, alcohol, or tobacco? What are you saved from? And his point was valid. What he was saying is, look, if you're not being saved from the power of sin, if you're not experiencing personal sanctification and holiness, then what makes you think you've been saved from the penalty of sin. In other words, that you're a brand new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. I mean, the only way we know that we have been saved from from the penalty of sin, that we're new creations now in Christ, is by how we're living outwardly now. A person that calls himself a Christian, but there's no outward visible, tangible signs of anything changing It's like they're living like they've always lived, but now they're wearing Christian T-shirts and got Christian bumper stickers on the car. That's a problem. And if the church had more old-time preachers in it that was calling people out, we'd have less people going into hell thinking they were okay with God. As Vance Havner, the old Baptist preacher, used to say, it's my job to comfort the afflicted, and to afflict the comfortable. And and boy, that's so true. Very few pastors today want to afflict the comfortable because the comfortable are often their biggest givers. Right? But Paul said, if I seek to please men, I'm no longer a servant of Christ. So, First of all, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin. And someday, number three, we will be saved, future tense, from the presence of sin. In other words, we're no longer going to live among sin. In Revelation 21, why don't you turn there. Revelation 21 In Revelation 21, John is talking about the sinless city where no defilement will ever enter, the new Jerusalem where all the redeemed will live forever. Let's read, starting with verse 22. Revelation 21, verse 22. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. Verse 27, But there shall by no means enter enter it anything that defiles. Absolutely no sin will be allowed in the New Jerusalem. By no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie and only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's where we're going to spend eternity. Now, that's in contrast to where all unbelievers will live for all eternity, which is the lake of fire. You can look at verse 6, Revelation 21. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. All right. Well, we have seen the first two words of the gospel. Power. Verse 16, salvation, verse 16. Number three, believes, also, verse 16, or in other words, faith. Verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. Listen, for everyone who believes. The Greek word for believes is pistuo, which carries with it the idea of trusting in and relying upon. Kind of a neat story I heard years ago Uh, when missionary John Payton went to the New Hebrides, which is a group of islands in the South Pacific Ocean. He went there to preach the gospel to the indigenous people there. And at one point he started to translate the New Testament into their language, but he quickly hit a snag. You see, their language didn't contain a word for faith. No small problem (laughs) when you're trying to translate the Bible into their language, a book built on the whole concept of faith. And I don't know how long Peyton prayed about this and struggled with it. I think it was weeks, maybe even months. He was at a, 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 just a, an impasse. And then one day a tribal messenger who had run a long way to deliver a message to John entered into his hut and dropped into a chair and said, It feels so good to put my whole weight on this chair. Peyton said, what did you just say? Um, It feels so good to put my whole weight on this chair. That's it. What happened? What do you mean? That's the word for faith. To put your whole weight on Jesus Christ. To rest completely on him. Well, the Greeks did have a word for faith, as I just said, pistuō." And, and we'll close with this. And when this word is used in the New Testament to speak of salvation, it's usually used in the present tense as it is used that way right here in Romans 1, 16. And therefore could be translated, is believing or continues to believe. Let me read the verse with that in mind. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who continues to believe. Now, this is an important statement by Paul. A crucial point that he is making almost in passing. You see, Paul knew, just as every evangelical pastor, including myself, knows, that just because a person claims to believe in Jesus Christ for salvation doesn't prove that they are really saved. It might simply be head knowledge. And head knowledge can fade. Head knowledge comes and goes. Whatever you feel based on head knowledge is often something that fades in time and you are redirected to something else. One of the things that demonstrates the genuineness of a person's faith is that they continue to believe. And of course, not just believe anything, but believe in the true gospel. Now we'll talk about that more as we progress through this book. Just because somebody believes in Jesus. Well, I've always gone to church. I grew up in church. I went to Awanas as a kid. I went to Bible camp every summer. That's great. But if your faith is really saving faith, it will demonstrate in that you will continue in the faith. You'll continue to believe. Listen to me. I don't want to mislead anybody. And when I say continue to believe, and we'll talk more about this later, next time we meet, but they need to continue, a true Christian continues to believe in the true gospel to the point of commitment. Now, I've made a big deal about that concept as we ended John's gospel, and I feel I need to touch on it briefly as we now progress into Romans. But I just want to say this. A person's continuance in the faith doesn't make them a Christian or keep them saved. It is simply the evidence, the fruit, that they are a genuine Christian and are saved. Even as Jesus said, you'll know them by their foliage. Their fruit. And the parable of the sower talks about Foliage, people that have an experience with Christ and things begin to grow real quick and yet it's only foliage, never comes to fruit. Jesus said you will know them by their fruit, not their foliage. Some people start looking good but they never really come to fruit bearing and eventually they're gone then because it wasn't real, it wasn't genuine. Look, as a young Christian, I allowed Colossians 1. Why don't you turn there? Colossians 1, verses 21 to 23, to terrify me. To terrify me into thinking I could lose my salvation. Now, if you haven't figured it out, I don't believe a true Christian can lose their salvation. I believe a phony Christian can walk away from the faith, showing their true colors. But I don't believe a genuine born-again Spirit-filled Christian can lose their salvation. We'll talk more about that as we get into this book as well. Got a lot coming. Get yourself a big notebook. Uh, Okay, But but as a young Christian, uh, I allowed Colossians 1, verses 21 to 23, to terrify me into thinking, I could lose my salvation. And of course, the devil wants you to think if you don't measure up from day to day. It's not even that you're out there living in overt sin. It's that I'm not walking in the Spirit. I'm not living a holy enough life. And, and and the devil uses all these thoughts to get you to think, oh yeah, you've lost it. But before he can get you to think you've lost your salvation, he's got to get you to believe you can lose your salvation. And he had me on the, on the rocks here, on the ropes, I'm telling you. Uh, you know, because until I was really getting into this passage, I didn't believe... A Christian Could Lose Their Salvation until I started getting into this passage and I was only reading it superficially. I really wasn't digging into it. That's the key. It wasn't until I dug into it that I realized it's not teaching what I thought it was. Let's read it. And you, who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, now you guys used to be unbelievers, Okay. yet now... He has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith. Uh Uh-oh. So if you backslide, you're out. Right? That's what I was getting from this. If indeed you're saved, wonderful praise God, if you continue in the faith grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard. As you do some study into this, in the Greek, this isn't a conditional statement, making our salvation contingent upon our our faithfulness in continuing in the faith. The word if carries with it the idea of assuming that you continue in the faith, or since you continue in the faith. That's to say that continuing in the faith isn't a condition for staying saved. It's a characteristic of those who are genuinely saved. They continue. Not that they never backslide, but they won't renounce the faith and walk away once and for all. They continue in their faith, no matter how many times they fail and fall. Proverbs twenty four sixteen is a great verse on this topic. For a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again. He who says he has no sin deceives himself and the truth is not in him. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're never going to be perfect this side of glory. Hopefully, we will sin less and less, but we will never be sinless this side of glory. So the word continue. In Colossians 1:23 is the Greek word menō, which means to persist in, adhere to, stay at or with, to abide. And again, the idea is that those who have genuine saving faith continue in their walk with Christ, proving that they are truly his disciples. I'll give you two scriptures, we'll close. First of all, John 8.31 and 1 John 2.19. John 8.31, 1 John 2.19. nineteen. First, uh, Excuse me, John 8.31, Jesus said, this is interesting, then Jesus said to those Jews, who believed him we're not sure at this point if they believed with their heads or with their hearts you could cross reference reference this with John 2 uh, verses 23 to 25 Uh, many believed in him but he did not commit himself to them because he knew what was in man and he knew that their faith basically wasn't genuine it was a head knowledge they were stimulated emotionally anyways then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide, again, Greek word meno, in other words, continue, remain in my word. Listen, you are my disciples indeed. The Greek word is aletheis, and it means truly my disciples. Continuing in the faith, in the word. I mean, you know, again, I've known people that have been on fire for the Lord, it seemed in my mind, for six months and then we're gone. It's like the seed that fell in the shallow soil, and it shot up real quick, and then the sun came up with it. It died, right? There are some folks that walk the aisle, pray the prayer, write, sign a card, and it's like they have hit the ground running. They make most of us feel convicted because they're so on fire. But after a few months, it seems like they're gone. They burned out. They're like a uh, one of the fireworks on the fourth of July, they they go up, and make a big you know, they burst onto the scene, and then all of a sudden ashes, they fall back to the earth. But the true Christians, my pastor used to say, are like the stars in the night sky. After the fireworks are over, you look up into that night sky, and you can still see the stars shining as they have done from the beginning of creation. Consistency. Consistency. One of the things Jesus said is, you want to know if you're truly one of my disciples? You'll continue in the word. Continuing the word doesn't make you one of my disciples. It just demonstrates is the evidence that you are one of my disciples. And I'll give you one last one. 1 John 2.19. They went out from us. John's talking about various people that had joined the church. But eventually they walked away. They went out from us. And I'll paraphrase. But they were not really one of us. For if they had been truly one of us, if they had been truly saved, they would have continued with us, John says. But they went out, they walked away, they renounced the faith that it might be made manifest that none of them were truly saved. And we're not talking about backsliding that's not the context the context is they left our group you know christians that backslide like david remember david how he backslid and he was miserable and he talks about the year he was out of fellowship and i was dry spiritually and i was hurting physically until it was miserable david never renounced his faith he just got into sin when we as true Christians backslide, we don't want to renounce the Lord. We never do that. We're ashamed. We're doing things that we're not pleased about. We know it's wrong. And eventually God who loves us he's pursuing us. He's right there. What are you doing? What What, what are you doing? Come on. I love you. We we have this relationship we need to keep working on. Don't do not do this. There's nothing in the world for you anymore. You know that. And eventually we come back to the Lord. This is not what we're talking about here. We're talking about people that walk away once and for all, renounce the faith. I'm going to be a Buddhist now. Maybe that's the way to go. I'm into the New Age movement. Maybe Wicca. Wicca, that's it. Okay, uh, you, you get it. Okay, so we'll next week is our week of fasting and prayer so we won't meet on wednesday for bible study we'll pick it up the week after okay so read ahead all right and bring a big notebook (laughs) father we thank you for your word and how incredible your word is lord it feeds us it it gives us refreshing living water in our souls and we ask you lord to please keep blessing these studies in your word For your glory and for our growth, we ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.